Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Better Words. I think I sound chirpier than I feel, to be honest. (laughs) Oh, well, still counts. Yeah. So for context, we usually record this on a Monday morning, UK time, Monday evening, Australia time. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, it's usually a day where we end up feeling pretty tired, right? (laughs) Just that like post weekend tiredness. Yeah, because I've been getting out and doing so much stuff in semi-lockdown. No, I stayed up late last night watching The Greatest Showman on UK TV, so I think that's why I'm a bit tired. I love that movie so much. We'll be playing the soundtrack on repeat this week. It's so good, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I did sort of allude to it then um, for people who are in Australia um, living in blissful ignorance of COVID. (laughs) Um, Things are just have been really tough this last week. And I've been talking to Caitlin about it a lot and just been like, (laughs) Um, so the the upside, because I'm going to try and look for the positives here. The upside is I'm spending a lot more time at home again, but this time I don't have uni. And we finished most of our interviews for Better Words, which as much as I love reading for Better Words, I did have a moment on the weekend where I thought, oh, my God, I can read whatever I want now. I know, right? Me too. (laughs) I don't have any obligations, which was quite, it was quite freeing to realise. And then, of course, I went into a mild panic of like, oh, but what do I read now? What do I feel like? What am I in the mood for? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I'll be be reading... I'll be reading a lot, probably watching a lot of television. Um, so again, just to put it into context for Aussie listeners, we're not going back into a full lockdown apparently, although the conversation continues every single day and the uncertainty of which is not helping. Um, but at the moment where where we live in England, we just moved to higher restrictions on Saturday, which means we can't meet indoors with any other household. So I'm just going to be spending a lot of time um in my own head and it's all the more reason when I go out for a coffee or whatever because I really want to support the local coffee shops and stuff I will be going on solo reading dates which I kind of love yeah so yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so um trying to trying to look on the bright side and make the most of it and watch a lot of tv and when I say I watch The Greatest Showman I um because it was on television here I made sure some of my friends were watching it and we were texting back and forth throughout being like, oh, my God, this is an amazing song. Oh, my God, Zach. Oh, oh, my God, Zach. So, yeah, that I mean, that adds another dimension, doesn't it, of not just turning to Jack and constantly being like, oh, Zac Efron's so hot. And, like, that's Jack saying that to me, actually, to be honest. He loves Zach. The whole time he was I just mean, like, oh, when's Zach going to be in it? When's Zach going to be in it? <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, with that being said, Caitlin, what have you been reading? What's your recommendation this week? I mean, it doesn't have to be a book, to be fair, if, if you've not got a reading recommendation. Good. Thank you for getting me out of that because I don't have a reading <laughs> recommendation because, like you said, we've been reading so much for better words lately and I would rather save that for our upcoming interviews. Mm-hmm. So I guess my recommendation this week is I finally watched Enola Holmes on Netflix. Yes. Yeah. I I mean, okay, let me give the one caveat. Jack was very excited to watch it because he is, as much as I love Zac Efron, he is in love with Henry Cavill um, because he's a massive fan of The Witcher, which I've not watched because, I mean, anyone who listens to this will know that, yeah, that's my reaction to it. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Jack's watched it fully three times through. Uh, I know he's obsessed and he's watched the behind the scenes ones that they put on Netflix and he's constantly telling me that they're filming the new one. Um, And I'm not even kidding. The other day he tagged me in a post that Henry Cavill put up saying, we love you, Henry, and tagged me. And I was like, why did you tag me? (laughs) 
And it was a post saying that Henry Cavill was in the Lake District, which is up north from us, uh, but closer than Guernsey, which is where he lives. And I don't know why Jack knows all of this. Oh, my so, God. That's so funny. He's totally uh, obsessed. That's adorable. He's so obsessed. Anyway, so Jack's criticism of this movie was that there was not enough Henry Cavill. But with that being said, I loved this movie, so I'm glad that you're going to talk about it now. Yeah, I loved it. And I don't know if I can agree that there's not enough Henry Cavill because he plays Sherlock and Sherlock can move on over so he can spend some time with his younger sister, Enola. I agree. I agree. I'm all for Enola being, and it's very like, it deals with some feminist issues, some suffragette stuff. Oh, it's so good. I loved this movie. I thought it was so good and it really does like reflect some modern themes along the lines of say having the right or privilege to vote and using that correctly and of course you're not interested in politics this world is built to serve you that was a good line oh my God. yeah that was really good yeah oh poor privileged white boy I know yeah that was that was really good but I did like him in the end so that's yeah the main one of the main characters they meet in a rather interesting way on a train which it's such a thrilling set of scenes where they have that sort of chase through the train and a leap off the, oh it's brilliantly filmed it's wonderful it's a really um like beautiful movie to watch there are so many great scenes and shots and locations and and the costumes are all awesome and I love it every time I swear she does this so many times where she says I'll give you five pounds to swap clothes with me (laughs) (laughs) Um, fourth wall breaks brilliant yes absolutely great fourth wall breaks is really really good you know what Um, we noticed when the credits rolled so michelle you know that my aunt monica is completely obsessed with fleabag and the first credit that shows up at the end of this movie is the director and mon said oh he directed fleabag That'll make sense now. It yes. makes so much sense. I mean, he did not write Fleabag, but the fourth wall breaks and expressions and little looks that Enola does do feel a little bit Fleabag-esque. So there's yes, that, that. flavour. <laughs> Thanks, Mon, for clearing that up because I never yeah. would have looked that up otherwise. So that's amazing. Yeah, I it was so that. fun. Oh, I can't and wait. I actually, I can't yeah, and I really, really liked Millie Bobby, Millie Bobby Brown in this because I haven't actually seen her in anything because I've never seen Stranger Things. Also never watched Stranger Things. Maybe it will happen in lockdown 2.0, whatever we're calling this thing that's not lockdown. Yeah, <laughs> I really don't think it's for me. So I've never seen her in that but obviously know her from that and you know been quite big the last few years I guess um and then of course we have Henry Cavill as Sherlock and then one of my favorites Sam Claflin as the other brother who I've already forgotten his name what was it it was like Mycroft or something yeah it's Mycroft 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 you know how I always remember it because of Ellie Marnie's every series oh which you haven't read because you don't really like Sherlock Holmes. Oh. <laughs> See, this is so many Sherlock things to catch up on. My goodness. I yeah. But, yeah. yeah. You know what I also realised? But I also realised right after the movie finished that Henry Cavill, Robert Downey Jr. and Benedict Cumberbatch have all played superheroes and Sherlock. <gasps> what is the That's... link? <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. I didn't realise that. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah, so that was fun. Oh, cool. Fun trivia. I like that. Yeah. But, yes, a very, very fun movie with a fantastic teenage girl lead character who is awesome, taking no shit from no one. (laughs) And I may be wrong, but I believe the novels that the movie is based on are... They might be YA, but I got the feeling that they were middle grade. I have not read them though. Um, but I, I think did I not looked know up how... that it was based on books. Well, there you go. But I looked up how old Enola is in the books, and she's 
like 13 or 14 and in the movie she's 16 because Millie Bobby Brown is 16. That is a brilliant recommendation. I love that. And what are you recommending? So this week it's another audiobook recommendation. Again, thanks to the lovely team at Penguin, they asked me if I'd like to do the audiobook tour for this book. And when I saw who it was by, I was like, yes, please count me in. So I just finished listening to Dawn French's new novel, Because of You, which I have to say is utterly brilliant and perfect for anyone who listens to this podcast and loves contemporary novels. Um, I was going to say like slightly like The Switch, but it's definitely not quite as fun because it deals with some difficult stuff. Um, but it definitely, light. yeah, I wouldn't say it's overall as quite, it's, it's got quite a hopeful feel at the mm-hmm. end of it. And it's a lovely story, but it definitely gets heavy at some points. But the wonderful thing is the audiobook is read by Dawn French. So oh, cool adds this other element to it which I really enjoyed and it's quite a quick listen as well I think I listened to it in two and a half days maybe went on a walk like I mean for anyone who's like oh I don't know if I could do audiobooks just like I replaced my podcast listening with audio so like cleaning the house doing some cooking I went on a walk I went to get groceries that sort of thing um but basically the book starts um at essentially the turn of the millennium um so uh new year's eve 2000 or new year's eve 1999 you know i never know what to say you know 99 <laughs> yeah 99 yeah. so that 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 night and ticking over into the next day two babies are born and one is born sleeping and that family are obviously devastated and that mother, Hope, makes a choice to take another woman's baby and raise her as her own. I know. And you're looking, like, oh you're looking at me like, oh, my God. But the way that she tells the story and the way that it unfolds, it really isn't so much. Like that's the opening like two chapters maybe, maybe three. I don't know. It's hard to tell when you're on audio. Yeah. So opening few chapters and then the book really is about her growing up what happens to the other mother, what happens to Hope, and then the sort of the, the reason why she has to confess that wow. she in fact she took her. This. Yes, and then the how things unfold after that really took me by surprise, but it's a beautiful novel about sort of what family means and... I guess what love means and what we would do for love and what we would do for hope, not the character, but the <laughs> feeling. Um, but yeah, basically it's a lot of feelings in this book, but yeah. it is still because it's Dawn French, she writes with a lot of humor. So even though it's a difficult, it doesn't feel, like I said, it never feels too, too heavy. heavy. It always feels quite hopeful overall and, pretty joyful at the end but it is that like life's ups and downs big issues and it's I'm trying to think of a comparison I mean like Olive which obviously we talked about a few episodes ago and maybe like a Marion Keys style relationships life that sort of thing but it's really lovely and the audiobook is well worth a listen because I just enjoyed Dawn French doing it she does really good like accents and again like um with books like the flat share and stuff I really love the way that they make phone calls sound like it's someone on the phone as well like it's such a little thing but I love it. it yeah so it's just such a little production thing but I really enjoy that element of it so yeah because of you by dawn french and i think it literally just came out last week over here so might be out soon in australia lovely okay so this week we are talking all about incredibly brilliant women who have won the nobel prize but we recorded this before the 2020 prize was announced so caitlin you've got a bit you've done some research You've got a bit of an update for us um, on the amazing number of women who won Nobel Prizes this year. 
I do. So we do have some information and kind of stats that we talk about with Laura in the interview. Um, but the number has officially gone up because four Ooh. more women won Nobel Prizes in 2020. So the first one uh, is for the Nobel Prize in Physics. Um, this year the prize was actually split and then a shared prize so weirdly on the website it says that she has earned a quarter of the prize <laughs> but it still counts she's still in the yep. tally yep. um and so the nobel prize for F- physics in 2020 went to andrea Gez for the discovery of a supermassive compact object at the center of our galaxy and I have no idea what that means. I don't know what that means, but I mean, that's why we do a book podcast, not a physics podcast. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then the other two, another two women who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2020 are Emmanuel Carpentier and Jennifer Doudna, who won for the development of a method for no- neome editing, which I can't even say and I don't know what it means again genome it's genome editing genome I don't know I think you say genome not gnome I don't know (laughs) but those are the three three women who won for science which of course before this it was only 20 and that's what Laura's um short short story collection is based on um, and the fourth woman who won a Nobel Prize in 2020 was for literature, and that was Louise Gluck for her unmistakable poetic voice with that beauty that makes individual existence universal, which is like Wonderful. a lovely sentence. Oh my God. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> I wonder how many people took to come up with that sentence. <laughs> I know, right? It's amazing. So oh. that is... The four more women to add to our tally of Nobel Prize winners. It's really lucky that Laura published Ordinary Matter when she did, um, because otherwise she would have had to quickly add in three more stories. So four more. yeah, three more stories. You're three right, more because it's yeah, because she wasn't including <laughs> literature. Funnily yeah. enough. Yeah, no, it was just for STEM stuff. So we do talk about that in the interview, and we hope that you enjoy. And congratulations to those absolutely amazing women who I'm in awe of. Our guest this week is an award-winning writer. She has a PhD in creative writing and literary studies, which I think is very, very cool, being a doctor of creative writing and literary studies. Her work has been published in multiple places, including Overland, Griffith Review, the Big Issue Fiction Edition, and many more. She's also won the Josephine Ulrich Prize for Literature, the Margaret River Short Story Competition, the Neilma Sydney Short Story Prize, and the Fair Australia Prize for Fiction. Her first book was a finalist in the Queensland Literary Awards and her second book, Ordinary Matter, was published on September 1st. She's also, very happily for us, a fellow Queenslander. Welcome to Better Words, Laura Elvery. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Caitlin. It is lovely to see you. Great to see you in your various rooms around the world. (laughs) The power of technology. I know. Who knew? So congratulations on the publication of Ordinary Matter. Thank you. It is a really cool concept, a short story collection inspired by 20 times that women have won the Nobel Prize for science. Can you expand on the concept a little bit more and tell us what inspired the book? So the Nobel Prize started in 1901 and two years later, the first woman won, Marie Curie, won for physics, and then she won again in 1911 and then we were sort of off, well, sort of off. So about 650 blokes have won in the sciences, chemistry, physics and medicine. We're all nodding here and 19 women 20 times. Um, and I was I was just intrigued by the numbers, I guess, at the very at the outset. Like I knew it would be really different, 19 versus 650 odd, but I probably didn't know how varied it would be. And, and I didn't know a lot about what the women had worked on and their research and the countries they came from. 
but the, the idea sort of when it first implanted itself in my brain, it was to do with the Australian woman, Elizabeth Blackburn, who I discovered I'd never heard of her. She's still alive, born in Tasmania. And I thought, why haven't I heard of her? And just sort of started to research Elizabeth's life a little bit. And that became the first story that I wrote because I thought, well, there's a good pitch idea. I was pitching a piece to Griffith Review and I thought, you know, there's an Australian angle. Um, I can write a story about her that's sort of not really about her but a bit about her research and then I was kind of off and I worked out this, you know, a table, a spreadsheet and for a couple of years I just tapped away at these 20 stories, although at the very outset it was even smaller. It was 18 stories and in the interim two more two more women won. So I had to quickly yeah. figure out those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Thanks, ladies. No, good job, ladies. And um, added the final two stories to the book and that actually – Thank you, ladies, because both of those, Donna Strickland and Frances Arnold, the final two, became, I don't know, really great ones to write at the very end. And so people understand, I guess, a bit about the short story collection. It's not stories necessarily of their life or with them always as characters. Mm. Um, So can you sort of give an insight into how you actually came up with each of the ideas for the story because they're all sort of related a bit to the prize winning but not it's not necessarily telling the story of the prize win for example that's right yeah and I knew at the outset the book would be told in the order that the medals turned up so 1903 gets the first one but it's set in 2003 very deliberately the second one is 1911 um, and it's set 10 years after that in the 20s So I knew that the order of the stories would be the order that the women won, which was fun, but I knew that I didn't want to do 20 Eureka stories, you know, the minute they're standing at the lab or out in the field researching. I didn't want that. At the very outset, I thought maybe each of the stories needs to be set in the year that they won, and that was sort of something I started doing. I guess there's a couple of other high concept short story collections that I was thinking about at the time that I love, like I love... Love of a Bad Man by Laura Elizabeth Woollett, which is first person women who've been involved somehow with a famous serial killer from history. And it's fantastic. So I was reading that at the time and I was reading Keridwen Dovey's Only the Animals, which is fantastic as well. First person soul of a, of a dead animal who died at the hands of humans in human conflict kind of. And it's extraordinary. So I was looking at these high concept short story collections and trying to figure out what my rules would be for it. Would it, would they all be first person? I didn't want to do that. Would they all be set the year they won? I didn't want to do that. And so the freeing part was when I went, you can do whatever you want really, love. Like you want to set this, 2000, this 1903 story in 2003, you know, no one cares. <laughs> do, whatever, do whatever you want. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, no one, no one was waiting for this. This was all written before it was had a contract. You know, like I was just, you're working on these projects you're not making any money from it at the start. It's just for the love of it at the beginning. It's just like a project. Here's a project for my brain. Can I do it kind of thing? I want to do this. Will it work? How will it work? What will it look like? And yeah, I went to my writers group and we just started brainstorming all these ideas and they were like, do as many creative things as you want. So yes, sometimes, um, you know, Rosalind Yellow, her story is the eve of the Nobel Prize ceremony in Sweden in 1977 so that's pretty close and she appears as a character that I've reimagined the night before wondering what is going on you know the night before you win and then you know May Britt Moser who's the uh, fourth last I think in the collection she and her husband researched sort of um, how inner positioning in the brain and how we how we figure out how we walk to work and how we remember how to get down the hallway and the way to our sister's house and all these sorts of memory and location. And so her story is about these elderly people who end up wandering off to this strange island off the coast of Queensland, ladies, and um, and and what happens to them when they've sort of started to, like, quote, unquote, lose their way a little bit. And May Britt Moser is nowhere near that story, but her research got me thinking about memory, getting lost, wandering around, forgetting things. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it must have been to try and all these, I guess, different sides of the stories and the research inspired 
so many different stories. The stories are all incredibly different. It's, I don't know how you come up with so many ideas. Sometimes that was hard. Like, I don't want to sound like a, a whinger, but sometimes that was the hard slash fun part. Like yeah. for some of the women, the idea came very early and it didn't change a lot. Like, this is what I'm doing. Here's a draft. It looks all right. Let's go with that. And then for others, I had this, like I said, this spreadsheet, which just had, that I just kept adding notes to. And I'd be like, could the story be about this or this or this? And I pinning down an idea was sometimes like the harder part. This, you know, that story could have been written seven different ways. And if I wrote the book again, which I don't want to do, <laughs> it would be totally different if I wrote it starting next year, because they all had such fascinating work, fascinating personal lives, some of them, um, you know, the motivations to get into science, some of them were motivated by um, a loved one who died or a loved one who'd been really sick. So that could be a point of, that was like a point of entry for some of them. Like, why did this person begin in a medical field, for example, or some of them, you know, fled Europe as, as migrants? That's an interesting idea for me. And then others were, you know, Barbara McClintock, spent all her life into corn. So I wrote a story about corn. So yes, it was kind of narrowing it down. What could this story be? But pick one, Laura, and just like go with it. <laughs> yeah, picking one was was probably the hardest bit, really. Yes, but eventually you've got to just like hand in a manuscript with 20 stories <laughs> at some point. You've got to stop, you know, talking about it and just pick one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how long was the um, writing process for Ordinary Matter from that, I guess, from on the shelves September back to when you started I, I I can pinpoint it I think to the night that a grant application was due I was like it's due at midnight <laughs> and I remember it being due at midnight and I rem- and the that's the only way, reason I can remember it I think is because I'd left my friend's kid's birthday party and got in the car and I was like no I've got till midnight come up with something write this grant application and that was December 2016, I think. And by the time the manuscript was done, it was basically December, you know, summer last year. So it's about three years, I think, on and off doing other things. But that's, you know, like I, I really do feel like those sort of deadlines are very good for me. I think they're really good for people who either don't have a lot on or have a lot on. Like <laughs> put it in your diary, make something up, figure it out later. Just put in an application for something and then you've you've committed to write it and um, and you're on your way kind of thing. That's how it felt. So I think it was about three years from start to finish with lots of false starts or gaps in that. Like I Trick of the Light came out during that time. Yeah. And I had my second baby came out during that time. So it was on and off as it is for, you know, probably most people you talk to. It's like finding bits and pieces of time. It is interesting to hear when people kind of go away from stories or come back to them. But I would imagine with a short story collection, you could come back to it one day, but you've already done some stories and you don't necessarily need to revisit them. Whereas with a longer novel, people always say they have to reread and re-edit the whole thing if they come back. And you can juggle like three or four on the go. And so if one wasn't working, so if I had a half a day to write, for example, you could just pick one. I could just pick one that I could go to and just, okay, I can write this for two hours now. If that one isn't working, forget about it, start a different one. So that is the beauty of the short story. And also sometimes you're not in the mood for a certain type of story. Like I I did know at the outset that ordinary matter, I really deliberately, some things aren't deliberate, but I really deliberately wanted it to have really different lengths. All the stories have different lengths. Um, You know, the longest is like, 12, 13,000, for example, and then some shorter ones. And I wanted, you know, the tone of a collection has to differ throughout, like the texture of each story. So if you're in like a certain type of mood or you've just read something that puts you in a certain type of mood, you can sort of like pick up that story, give it a go, and on another day that story wouldn't work for you. So that is different from writing a novel manuscript, very different, which has felt more linear to me when I've done that in the past. So interesting. I wonder then with like different stories having, you know, being so different, different tones, different lengths, like you were saying, but you already knew that they would be in or chronological order of the prizes. So was that hard to make sure that it felt a bit different as you were going in order? Yeah, a little bit hard, especially to, especially at the beginning, actually. Like I think it was once it was acquired as a collection, it maybe had 
six or seven stories, say, all different, you know, I can't remember which ones, but all over the place. And then I had to write the rest. And so because I'd written, say, six throughout, and maybe they were the, you know, the first, the fifth, the whatever story, by the time it got to, I can, I'm picturing myself here at Varuna, where I went a few times to finish this book, God bless Varuna. Um, and I, I'm picturing myself on the final time I went there, which was July last year, I got the big room, <laughs> room, Eleanor Ducks. Oh, it's beautiful. And you get two desks. Oh it just God. feels like as big as my apartment. It's beautiful. And you get two desks. So I had a writing desk and then another desk on the other side. And I laid out all of these index cards for this 20 stories because I had five left to go. And what I could see with those index cards was these are the five stories that are left. Where do they sit in that 20? Um, And by the end, it does become a bit more careful or a bit more deliberate, like let's not have seven first-person stories in a row. Let's not have um, five stories in a row where the woman does appear. Let's change it up a little bit. So by the time it got to just filling in gaps, that's actually helpful if you've got to write that one today and it can't be first person and it can't be loosely connected. She has to be really closely connected to it and it needs to be long or it needs to be, you know, by the by the time it comes to the end, those little rules actually really help to finish it because it was already sort of, funneling down a little bit it couldn't be everything it just had to be what was left sort of thing like a little challenge I am so fascinated by your planning process for this because I'm such a nerd when it comes to this stuff so you've mentioned a spreadsheet take us inside this spreadsheet how did you organize this in your mind when I say spreadsheet I mean a table in google docs so like a (laughs) word doc with a table in it (laughs) nice Nice. Well, that's like, that's like a spreadsheet for writers. Like that's not touching a spreadsheet unless I have to, unless it's for my job. Um, yeah, so I had a table and just I think it was something like you know the year she won, her name, country of birth. I think the Nobel Prize records the country or their university association when they win the prize. Don't think it records country of birth, but Wiki, you know the inter- the internet does. Yeah. So the year she won, her name, what it was for, like, you know, really brief stuff about her research that I'd go off and do more research for some of them. And then the final column was like, this story could be about this weird thing, or it could be about this, or it could be about this. And then as I went through, a little satisfying thing was to color, was to highlight them and color them in different, this meant completed, this meant halfway there you know this meant published so if I'd published one already so there's a few in the collection that have been published previously and that felt really good to see it's a a very delayed gratification over three years the document go from all white to you know purple or whatever it was to be all by the end oh that's so cool and it is it is funny to look back at it actually or not funny like you've got to take a bit of pride in it to be like oh my god I thought that story would be about this and it is absolutely not at all about this or a couple of times I remember writing a scene that I thought would be for one woman and it ended up being a scene in a different woman's story altogether in the very early days and that's really fascinating I think or interesting to see um, whose story I thought that would be a couple of times that happened yeah I love that Um, in preparation for this, I actually looked up um, some stats for the Nobel Prize for us and for our listeners. So in case Let's do it. you don't know, the Nobel Prize has been awarded for physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, peace and economic sciences since 1901. Not every year consistently, I figured out, but um, <laughs> and it's been awarded almost 600 times to 950 people and organizations and only 54 winners are women but 24 of those 54 are from 2001 to 2019 yes which is that's so cool yes this is what I'm always afraid someone will be like actually there was a woman you forgot Laura and I'll be like I guess I'll go back and write another part of the book can you imagine (laughs) can you imagine um no, I didn't find that. I wasn't fact-checking you for that. I was just like... Thank you, Caitlin. <laughs> I, you know, seeing on the back of the book, I was like 20 winners. And 
I'd forgotten even every time I read that number 20, I would forget that it's actually 19 because someone won it twice. Yeah, the first two, yeah. Yeah, but reading that, I just got so curious, especially because I knew that the Nobel Prize wasn't just science. So 15 women won for literature and 17 for peace so far. The 2020 Nobel Prize is being awarded in October. I just got in in time. Um, and <laughs> you're so right about the 21st century. And, I mean, if you were if you were graphing all of this, you would expect that from now on. I would You know, like it took. Yeah. And Murray's daughter won in 1933. So the first three were won by the mother and daughter until 1947. Oh so it took 46 years for a non-Curie woman to win. And three women, three women have won for physics and each of those was about 60 years apart. Wow. You know, like 2018, Donna Strickland is the most recent. There's only three and it took like two years for men to win three. Like it's, it's quite amazing. And then, you know, in 2009, the year that Elizabeth Blackburn won, the Australian woman, she won with her former student, Carol Greider. That was the first year two women had shared because you can share it by up to three people. So it was Carol, Elizabeth and Jack Stozak. And then that year also a woman won the chemistry prize and that year a woman won the literature prize and the economics, which sort of sits outside that um, Nobel Prize suite. But so 2009 was this like really cool year of a high number of women, probably the highest number, I think. Yes, I'm a a bit into it. Can you you tell (laughs) us? I went to, um, I got to go to Stockholm in December and I went to the Nobel Prize Museum and I was there in the city in the week that they award it. So I didn't get to go to the ceremony because no one invited me, but <laughs> but I stayed at a hotel, which was down the road from the concert hall. So I waved at the concert hall and it was beautiful. And people like stood out on the night when um, it was freezing, freezing. And there's these women in these um, evening gowns and boots and then I wandered over to the hotel where all the winners traditionally stay. This beautiful big hotel on the harbour. And I, you know, I wandered in there like a creep and pretended to be a, you know, guest, which I clearly wasn't, and then walked out again. You know, these Nobel Prize buses are taking all these winners and their entourages and these other officials all over the city and they go on tours. And then the museum is over in the old town. It was just beautiful. And I just really got into it. It was it was a lot of fun. And who knows what will happen this year, but I feel really lucky that I, it really felt like a big deal. Like it felt like Stockholm was into it. I was into it for for those couple of days in December. I love those sorts of traditions, same time every year, all of that. Like that, that is amazing. And it's one of these things that when I was looking it up and I was like reading how many people had won it and how many years it's been going for and everything. And I was like, I've never thought that much about the Nobel Prize, but obviously it is a very big deal. It's the most I've ever thought about it for three years as well. <laughs> I'll move on. I promise I'll move on from now. No, you know what? There is nothing. There is nothing that I like more than hearing people talk about something that they are passionate about, even if I have no idea about it yeah. or yeah. I'm not necessarily interested in it not saying that's the case here of course but you know like that was something I loved as a journalist is getting to talk to people and be like yeah tell me this weird thing that you're into tell me I your, yes yeah tell me your weird obsession <laughs> tell me your obsession yeah <laughs> so <laughs> exactly and you going to you going to Stockholm it sounds like when I went to when I went to Liverpool for the first time and yes. I was just because I love the Beatles and I was just like oh my god like it's it's so funny that you're going to all those places yes. and you know, I must admit, like, the only um, scientist that I'd heard of in this collection was Marie Curie, and that's because I had read a, a brilliant book that I, I wanted to bring this up just to recommend the book, um, The Radium Girls oh, yeah. by Kate Moore. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, and that was the only reason, and, I mean, that's not even necessarily about Marie Curie. <laughs> so I don't even really know about her or anything and I really I think that's because um you know you probably guessed we are very much like literature nerds here yes. so um I got it so the science stuff has always sort of passed me by a little bit but yeah this is amazing well yeah, well Marie is- Curie and the Radium Girls was my first sort of entry into it and it was the it's the title story of Trick of the Light is a Radium Girls story basically 
And I heard that story about the Radium Girls on a podcast years ago and was totally fascinated by those women who, you know, worked in these factories around America, you know, with this deadly substance, totally hoodwinked by their bosses who didn't touch the staff, but they were assured it was healthy. And then, you know, it became one of the first big class actions in America, workplace reform, but but these women died. Like it was just tragic, absolutely tragic, and they died painful deaths. So that was sort of my foray into it as well, Michelle, was what what is going on there? And then one of the character, the, the main character in that story I wrote, very obliquely mentions Marie Curie in that story. And I was like, ooh, I'm not done with her yet. That's how I felt. I'm not done with her yet. <laughs> I would like to know more. I'm not done like with to- you. Sorry, Marie, I'm not done with you. I would like to do a bit more. And that's kind of what I kept on. That's how that part of Trick of the Light sort of followed me really into Ordinary Matter. And I mean, for me, like as as a writer, as a creative person, that's when I know that I need to keep, when, when that idea just won't leave you alone and it keeps coming back in your life in different random that's ways, so that's when I'm like, yeah, I need to keep following that. Th- it's that thread. You need to just keep pulling that thread really. So yeah. that's wonderful to know that it's like crossed over so much as well. So that's that's amazing that that's one of the starting points as well. Um, is there one story in the collection or perhaps one scientist who is maybe like, I don't want you to pick favourites, but is there one that's maybe a little bit closer to your heart than others? Um, there probably is. There's probably a few that I think of fondly, like whether the writing of them was easy. Sometimes that makes you feel really fond towards a story, like it was a piece yeah. of cake. And other times you can feel fond towards something if it was really hard one, like that it took a long time. It took months and months and months. Something close to gold is that the third one, which is Irene Joliot-Curie, that took me months to write. And I kind of like that one because I, I gave it to a wide range of people to read, some people I wouldn't normally give it to. And I worked on it for a long time. It got published. It's been published before it was in the book uh, and people seem to like it. So that's a nice feeling as well. Uh, I like Frost, the Dorothy Hodgkin one. I've spoken before about how I like that one because it's a bit of a weird voice, I think. There was a little voice that came to me, this dead brother of the portrait artist who painted the scientist in the 80s, which I kind of liked and and decided to just go with, even though I thought it was perhaps a little bit off-putting, but I ended up liking that one. Um, and then, and then, yes, there are some, like I said, I went to Varuna in July last year. I've been a few times and I had those five left to write. And over those, over that final week there, I really did have to get these drafts down, not perfect, not final versions, but drafts due to my publisher the next week. And so there's a couple in there that just sometimes you just get these lucky days where it's, you sit down with your pot of coffee at Varuna and your bowl of muesli you've got no other responsibilities all day, no job, no children, nothing else to do, no one needs you for anything and then you just write a 3,000-word story. And because it happens so rarely like that, there's a few in there that were those sort of like five-day stories that uh, that I feel kind of proud of for that reason. But, yes, I do really like all of these women. I feel very (laughs) – all of them have had just these totally fascinating lives totally resilient, bright, professional obstacles, personal obstacles, xenophobia, racism, war, and then, you know, regular stuff like Rosalind Yellow really did return to the lab a week after her baby was born and she wasn't supposed to, she wasn't allowed to, and she probably wouldn't have called herself a feminist at the time. But the way I kind of see it or the way I would like to see it is that she absolutely was because she said, no, I'm going to do both of these things at once and I'm getting back to work. And all these women have these little admirable things about them that I um, totally admire. So even though it it wasn't that you were basing the short stories on their lives or anything like that, it's it's evident anyone who's, who's listening to this will be able to tell you've done so much research into each of them. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Like how, how did the the thing that I always find it, how did you know when to stop researching (laughs) 
and actually start you'd like have to pull yourself up and be like no I've actually got to write the story now like I can't justify doing any more research that's a sad time isn't it when you that's a really sad (laughs) point when you're like damn it it's two o'clock I've got to get out of this little rabbit hole here because I really do like researching for fiction I I absolutely love it I like getting all those details correct and finding out like the second story Grand Canyon has Marie Curie in it and her daughters in America as an example and once I decided to set it Marie Curie really did go to America to retrieve this gram of radium that was worth $100,000 and then you're in this 1922 I think research rabbit hole and I remember sitting at this cafe in this rabbit hole and I'm researching the Carnegies because she met Andrew Carnegie's wife and she what what were they eating how much did a bottle of coke cost how do you get from New York City to the Grand Canyon can you you know let's let's spend four hours looking at at that let's spend four hours looking at cars like that is just so when you say when do you know when to stop I just don't I really enjoy it (laughs) but I think it's really important to get those no one else cares like no one's gonna email me and say you got that car wrong but it is a sense of pride and I do like when you read a, a book where you think where you feel in in really in safe hands where you go this person is not putting an iPhone in Marie Curie's hand you know that sort of an- anachronisms that are really fascinating you're working hard to do that and then I guess you're working hard like I read biographies of the women I read biographies I did a lot of internet research read some of their scientific papers like I'm not a scientist at all not at all but I did do a PhD so I did some you know like I enjoy research but just even just getting that sense of like I'd read these scientific papers and because that is not where my brain sits on a regular basis yeah that sort of like trying to push through and being like they did what now they did (laughs) this is what does this mean it's you sort of had to push through that and just try I had to try my best for some of them that's a challenge and that's interesting reading these biographies or um you know for the for the later ones they're on YouTube explaining their research you know Linda Buck is on YouTube explaining how we can tell the difference between an apple and a banana without um you know how we can smell the difference between two fruits that on paper molecular wise look really similar like it's just so she's there explaining it and I'm sitting there you know like seven hours later that that's really terrific fun but yes at some point you just gotta you just gotta stop you gotta turn off the internet and and write the words yes it's amazing. I can't how much scientific research you'd have to do I would get so confused oh, <laughs> with all of this stuff oh, that must have been really I mean yeah interesting but quite challenging oh my god whenever I research something for uni and I mean I'm doing writing and literature so it's hardly scientific but whenever I research something and it has like the the paper is like you know methods of this it's like it's based on like surveys and stuff I'm just like oh my god just take yeah. me to the discussion and tell me what you found I don't understand and tell me it's quite story. frankly I don't tell yeah. me a story about just your tell research me, just tell me what you found what does this mean mm. I think we'd like to hear a little bit more about your PhD. Yes, happy to. That was um, really good. If you want to do a PhD, ask me because I had a really good experience, I think. Good. Glowing review. Great. Yeah. I mean, it was a few years ago, so maybe I'm misremembering bits of it. But um, Like childbirth where you forget how painful it is. Like, yeah, let's do another one. A little bit. So I started, I did a master's in 2011 and into 2012 realized I liked being on campus too much to finish and I wanted more of it. So I asked a couple of lecturers that I really liked at QUT whether they'd supervise me. So I did the PhD from 2013 to the end of 2016, I graduated. And that was basically really totally different from what I'm doing now. And I wrote Trick of the Light during my PhD, but it was not my PhD project at all. I just had fun writing short stories on the side. So my thesis was about. Even have time. That's amazing. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of like a little outlet, I guess, or a, a little fun thing to do in an afternoon. If you get all your PhD work done in the morning, for example, and you send it off to your supervisor, you might have a couple of hours or something. So my thesis was basically it was practice led at QT, and I was there with 
an amazing group of people like Mirandi Rewo was in my office and all these fabulous, fabulous lecturers and people that I'm really, really good friends with um, now, Emily O'Grady and Ella Jeffrey, all these wonderful people. So my thesis was about, I wrote a novel, a middle grade novel actually, about a little girl in a town that makes sugar, makes lollies, is obsessed with lollies. And then suddenly the sugar goes missing and she needs to figure out a way to make these bootleg versions without the adults noticing with her friends and distribute these lollies around town. And they're all obsessed with it. And it was so, it was really fun. I really liked writing it. And then my thesis that accompanied it was about lollies in children's literature, basically. And you know, what they, what they might, what they might mean, what they meant to me and how they acted upon children in, in novels and things like that. And so, yeah, it was a novel and a thesis, 50,000 word book. And, oh, I loved it. It was great. Totally different. So it's sitting there, this novel, I still think of it really fondly. I don't ever think anything is really wasted like that. I wrote a few manuscripts during my master's, two during my master's, one during the PhD, who knows what it will, if it will end up anywhere, but it was, I know you just learn, you just learn about drafting and you learn about receiving feedback from supervisors, you know, cut, I had, I really lovely supervisors, but cut this page, cut this, this is boring. This is irrelevant, really lovely supervisors, but you still learn um, how to be, how to research, how to go about things, how to be edited, where to find things in a library, and also just it gives you three and a half years of mostly paid thinking space to just sit at your desk and your one job is to complete this 100,000-word project. And I get a bit funny, I get a bit sad about it now with the state of universities in Australia at the moment. And I think I don't know if the 2020 me would go and do a PhD now. In fact, I probably wouldn't. I just think it's in a different space. Scholarships might be scarce. And that makes me really sad because I feel like I, I just really don't think I would be a creative writer now if I hadn't done a master's and, and a PhD at all, even though they are very different from what I write now. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, Jack asked me the other day why I was doing my master's and I was like, I don't know. I like to learn and punish myself, maybe. Like I just, but it is for me, learning how to analyse things, I just think it makes you a more critical thinker overall. And I, I get a bit annoyed with people who, I mean, I know it's a real privilege to even have been able to do that. Like I, I had a job during it, but I had to cut back a lot of hours and, you know, essentially you're not making a lot of money, all these sorts of things. So it's a really privileged thing to be able to do. But that question of what's the point or you should only do one if you want to get a career in academia, I just don't think that's true. I think if you want to do one and you have the means to do it and it takes a lot of work and is very, very hard, it doesn't matter if you don't want to work in academia because I don't anymore and a lot of writers I know don't anymore. But I just think sometimes things are um, in and of themselves worthwhile. They don't have to have a really great answer about what you're going to do at the end, which is a privilege, but I, I think it's really true. Do it you want to do it and now you have a PhD and I never need to look at that thesis ever again <laughs> but I feel really proud about it and it's done and I ended up doing it and I had my daughter while I did my PhD and I met all these people and all those little industry connections and that is honestly how I heard about an unpublished manuscript prize through the Queensland Literary Awards that I entered and that's how I heard about these literary journals that I've written for now. I just had no, I just had no idea about any of that. Um, an old lecturer emailed me today asking if I'd come and have a chat with people. Like I just didn't know those things existed and I feel really grateful for them. When you're a creative person as well, it is just you learning the craft too yeah. and you understanding it more. Even if in the future you never make those decisions consciously, that thinking process allows you to grow as a writer. I agree. And you're sitting in a room with people who are editing your work or people who just want to talk about books and creative writing with you and nowhere else in your life do people do that or nowhere beforehand in your life do people do that. And you're all there and it's, yeah, you're critically thinking, 
you're being creative, you're listening to other people, you're giving feedback, all those really, really rich experiences that just can't be sort of quantified to, you know, some politicians at the moment. Some, (laughs) 90% of them, sorry. (laughs) Yes, well, I guess the other, you know, crazy things this year, um, Ordinary Matter was obviously published in September, which was is a gigantic month for publishing all around the world. Lots of books were moved to September, even though there were already books in September. So how did you find the publishing process this time round in crazy 2020? Yes, and I think we probably read the same Guardian article about 600 books in the UK or something and Waterstones being like, how am I going to do that? I think in Australia it's a little bit different. Like it has just been such a year, hasn't it, really? Very big books Christmas. (laughs) Yes. And, um, you know, publishers are so careful and strategic about when your book comes out. So Trick of the Light was February, March 2018. And I remember there are reasons if you're a debut short story writer from Brisbane, you're not going to sell a million copies. And there are reasons why you do February, March. You know, it's not near Mother's Day. It's not a Ricky Ponting Christmas book, whatever it is. And then there were reasons why originally Ordinary Matter was going to be August and um, that was fine. I was going to go live in Oxford actually for a few months, Michelle. That would have been really fun. Turns out I didn't. Surprise, I'm here. But so August it was going to be um, and then very early on, probably around March actually, when, you know, I was saying my friend Mirandi Rewo, she was probably like the first Zoom launch at the end of March through Avid Reader. I think they did like the first mm-hmm. one. And so that was all very sudden and everyone, you know, had their hearts in their mouth kind of thing. So I feel really lucky that mine was moved one month for a few reasons. Like I'm really glad it's not next year because, you know, you finish a book. It was sort of I handed it to them a year ago, the ma- the yeah. first manuscript or the whole thing, a few months of editing leading up to Christmas over the Christmas holidays, I went to the beach and I took my first pages, you know, the big, beautiful A3. That's a really fun thing to do. And you sit at the table at, you know, at the beach and you, that's sort of your last chance to make any big changes, biggest changes. I loved that part because you can see it all laid out. So that was August, December, January. I think it went to the printer, you know, early 2020. So it's done. So to delay it more, I would have said yes, like there's nothing you can do, but I'm really glad that it was one month into September, um, you know, the month before the next round of Nobel Prize winners is announced. Exactly. And, um, you know, 50 more women might win next month. Hooray. But there are other people I know who are delayed indefinitely, who don't know when their books are going to come out, or people who thought theirs would be out two months ago and it's they've got to sit on it for another year and it could be sitting in a warehouse somewhere. You're ready to talk about it. And then you're probably ready to move on from it and and start the next thing. So it's yeah. been... I, yeah, you always have other work in the pipeline as well. But I do yeah. feel really grateful. Even the September thing. Look, I've got a few weeks here before Mr. Dalton's book gets out. and But good for him. And hopefully it gets people into bookshops and they're there to buy that beautiful book and some other Australian people's beautiful book. So I feel like I've been to, you know, 500 zoom launches this year of melbourne writers and sydney writers that i wouldn't have been to so i feel really lucky about those things even though gee i wish i had a party for my launch and i wish um my friend could have flown up and and seen me and i wish i could have done some q a's in person but i've done all these awesome podcasts and q a's online and and all these sorts of other things so september there are a lot. You're right. There's heaps. <laughs> yes, Short <they> answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is one of those things, isn't it? Is that, you know, obviously a lot has changed everywhere, but publishing is so old fashioned um, and still very traditional. So the having to adapt to a very digital virtual world for the whole industry has been really do you interesting. Do think that's been done well as someone who works in publishing, Caitlin? Do you think that? we've done pretty well because we had to, I guess, you know, it's taken some adjusting and it'll be interesting to see, you know, if we are allowed to, you know, go back to normal, what stays because like Mm. 
virtual launches and Zoom events are fantastic because fantastic. anyone can go. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, we're from regional Australia, so. Yeah. We've been missing out on all the book launches in Sydney and Melbourne for years, and now we get to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. So there are some positives, definitely. And um, I guess we all have to try and take the positives out of this. Definitely. Year. Definitely. And, hope, and hopefully books have been acquired this year. Like hopefully publishing houses, you know, people seem to be buying lots of books and hopefully all these acquisitions have still been happening so that in a year you see that next range of books coming out. Um, yeah, all but I've been buying, I mean, that's all I've been buying. It's just like a million dollars worth of books. I've That's what I've been doing. Reading, reading. Yeah. Mm. I know. I think 2020 so, has been a good year for reading. <laughs> Everyone's just at home reading. <laughs> yeah. And um, actually, I think the UK stats showed that um, the number of children reading has gone up as well, which is very good. Yeah, it's always encouraged. That's lovely. So let's end on that note, the positive, the positives to come out of this year. Um, congratulations again on the publication of Ordinary Matter. Uh, where can people find you and follow you online? Oh, yes. Um, and thank you so much for having me, both of you. That's just been really lovely. Um, <laughs> so I, you can follow me on Twitter at Laura Elvery and I have a website, lauraelvery.com. And... Um, that would be very lovely. And I love to have little writerly chats on Twitter and things like that. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Thank you.